Good evening, church. It is great to see you for the third installment of August in the Annex. We're glad that you're here. We want to welcome you. Let's just together thank John and all the crew for the food. Tonight we truly have a, a treat for us as we think about living the Christian life in a digital world, in a technological world. How do we navigate successfully? Um, how do we safeguard ourselves and our families from the pitfalls of social media that are so prevalent and prominent in our culture? And as a staff, as we sat and talked about that, we thought there's probably nobody better for us to reach out to and ask to come than Alex Riles. The good thing about Alex is not only does he have the knowledge and the information, the expertise, and not only is he a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who loves the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, but even on top of all of that, he's one of us. He's been here at this church for years, um, and then the Lord has taken him and his family to Phoenix, Arizona, and he's going to speak a little bit more about that in a moment. Uh, but when he comes back, he's not coming back as a guest or a visitor. He's coming back as, as a brother in Christ, as a friend. And so tonight, I want you to warmly welcome our friend, our brother, Alex Riles. Well, hello. I am incredibly excited to be here. As he said, this used to be my church home. And so I look across the audience and I can spot a third of you that I know pretty well, that I have served with and been in missions with and uh, count friends. Um, we have been gone for a little while. Uh, this morning I was in church and uh, several people came up and asked, how's my family doing? And so for those of you who know, know my family, a quick update uh, is we, we were called away a couple of years ago. Uh, my wife and I felt like we were being called to move to the other side of town. I say the other side of town, over to the 280 area. And so we did that, and we found ourselves at Brook Hills. And, um, you know, God had a real purpose for, for calling us over there. We, we struggled with a decision to leave Pelham because we have some lifelong friends here, and we love the teaching here and the mission-mindedness of this church. But we felt strongly for some reason, and we honestly didn't know why, but God called us to Brook Hills and put us in a Sunday school class that was made up 100% of transplants from other cities, like literally everybody in this Sunday school class. And as we got to know them and their amazing stories about how God brought them to Birmingham for various reasons, during that year that we were at Brook Hills, God led Shander and I to feel like our calling was to go to Phoenix. And we did not know why, <clears throat> to be honest. But what I do know is that if we were still at this church with all of you who we care deeply about, I think it would be very difficult for us to have made a decision to leave and go to Phoenix when God was telling us to do that. And so he moved us to a church with 100% of people surrounding us that were transplants because they listened to God's word and uh, they were obedient to that. And so because of that, we did move to Phoenix two years ago and it's been awesome. We found a great church there, Harvest uh, East Valley. There's five Harvest churches in the Phoenix area. It's a non-denominational Bible preaching church. Um, there's about 200 Harvest around the country. The mothership is in Chicago. James McDonald uh, is the pastor of that church. 
Uh, you may have heard of James McDonald. And so um, we're a four-year-old church plant. We're up to 800 people already. It is growing like crazy. And we're just having a blast there. God's using my family in lots of ways. My wife and I teach a young adults ministry. Um, my girls are involved in, um, in children's ministry. And we've plugged in, uh, we think, effectively. And, and so uh, we just know that we have found a, a, a good um, existence there. I won't call it home. My parents are up here and they would shoot me if I said it's home, but uh, we come back here and call this home for sure. So um, we, we were, we're really excited to, uh, to, to all that God's doing with us in Phoenix. So for instance, my daughters, if you remember Abby and Alyssa, Abby's now in 11th grade. She's a dancer and Alyssa is a freshman this year in high school and she is uh, involved in tennis and some other things and my wife teaches at their school. So uh, we're doing well. Uh, God brought me to a company that, um, a large Fortune 100 company, Tech Data. I am their, uh, run their cybersecurity business. So that means that uh, on a day to day basis, I don't, I'm not involved in cybersecurity for the company protecting us. Um, I'm actually selling cybersecurity products to partners. There's 8,000 partners across the U.S. And partners sell to 120,000 in customers like a CVS or a Walgreens or a Walmart. So uh, I, I do cybersecurity now, which is a pretty fascinating place to be in. I, I um, staff a bunch of hackers and uh, every day I find it troublesome to go to work and know that my phone is turned on and my Apple Watch and uh, there, the other day they came in and they had compromised the vending machine and I'm like, guys, <laughs> chill. Let's, let's not uh, get fired uh, if we could. That would be great. So they're, they're pretty fascinating. I've learned things that I did not want to know, things that you don't want to know that's going on uh, right now behind the scenes in our world. Um, but it is fascinating. Technology is an area that I'm passionate about. Um, I was heavily involved here at this church. I, I it w built one version of your website at one point uh, in our history. And um, so technology is a passion of mine. But what's really exciting to me about being here tonight is that this is the culmination of what I'll call a six-year journey. So about six years ago, I was uh, teaching 12th grade boys Sunday school here uh, in, in this building, and Donnie and I were talking out, out in the, um, the foyer about maybe putting on a seminar of some kind over a summer, and we were batting around ideas, and we, we had this idea, what if, what if we talked about how to help families who are struggling with technology and how it impacts their family and their ability to raise their kids in a Christian environment? And so the idea sounded pretty good, and so I started building some of the curriculum, and then uh, we ended up not using it at that point in time. I think Donnie said it was terrible. I don't remember exactly, but he probably did. And so we didn't use the curriculum, but I kind of tucked it away. And we ended up doing a different type of series for that particular event. But um, when Donnie called me at the beginning of the summer and said, hey, Alex, guess what? We're back on. Uh, I was super excited because uh, that let me go, go spend some time over the summer and work on some of this curriculum and um, this was originally, six years ago, intended to be like a half a day kind of seminar. So instead of three or four hours, I have pared it down to two and a half. So it's not three. Um, don't worry, I'm going to get you out of here before 10. But uh, no, we've shortened, I've shortened this down to about an hour and a half, of course. And, and there's a lot of good meat here. And so we're going to cover a lot of interesting topics 
um, but, but kind of quickly, right? And so there's not enough time to go in depth with a lot of things, but I, I'm hoping it's going to be helpful. So um, let me give you a, a little agenda, uh, what to expect. So first of all, uh, I want to look at what are some of the benefits of technology, right? How, because technology is great. There, our, our digital world provides a lot of conveniences, and it's nice. Um, but then we're going to take a look at the negative side of technology, the internet, digital um, and some of the concerns we should have as Christians, raising Christian families. And then I want us to look at what does Scripture have to say about raising our kids, our family, in this type of environment, right? And then we're going to wrap up with some practical things. So there'll be some practical application. I'll give you some best practices on, on a few things for your, your home and your phone and that kind of thing, just because just I think that'd be helpful. So I'll, I'll let you know right ahead of time that um, the slides I'm going to show tonight, there's some, a lot of content on there that can be interesting and things you might want to write down. As soon as I'm done speaking, this presentation will be available on the church website on a banner ad on the homepage. You can click that banner ad and download a PDF version of, of my content. So if, if you don't have a way to view PDF files on your computer, just Google for PDF viewer, and it'll take you straight to a link to download a little program called Adobe Acrobat Reader, where you can watch PDF files. Most of your computers will probably already be able to open a PDF document, though, and, and look at it. So know that the content's available. You don't have to, to take pictures and, and take notes on everything if you don't want to. So um, as, as we dive right in, I want to start with a quote. And this is a quote from a guy He's an evangelist. You've probably never heard of him. I think he spoke occasionally. His name was Billy Graham. Um, he said something really interesting, and I thought it was worth us taking a look at this. So let me, um, let me put this up. The quote says, When I think of the Internet, I can't help but recall Jesus' words. He said, And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. It's Matthew twenty four fourteen. Perhaps we're living in those days. Every month, traffic on the internet increases, and with it, the opportunity for us and other Christian organizations and churches to spread the good news of Christ's salvation. Never forget, however, that even the most sophisticated electronic device is no substitute for a person who knows Christ and is seeking to share his love with others. Are you praying for those around you? And are you sharing Christ with them? I love this quote. Because it reminds us of one simple truth that will be a theme of my presentation, which is we can't get so distracted with technology that we're not on mission for Christ, right? Our mission for Christ is the most important thing. It says in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that's like Birmingham, Judea, that's like Alabama, Samaria, that's like the U.S., and to the ends of the earth. So when we receive the Holy Spirit at salvation, when you surrender your life to Christ, then you're expected to be his witness here at home to your neighbors and at work but also out. That's our mission. And sometimes I feel that we get so distracted with technology, and we're going to talk about this a little bit tonight, I might even step on a toe or two, we get so distracted that we lose sight of the mission. That's frightening, right? There's another verse that you guys are all familiar with in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. If you think about that verse for a minute, the word go in the original translation is as you are going. So the assumption here is that we're going to spread the gospel. And then it says, while you're going, make disciples. That's the command. But think about what's involved in making disciples. Is that a quick dinner with a friend? No. Making disciples is a lifelong endeavor. It is a relationship one-on-one with somebody to bring them along in the spirit, to help them understand scripture. That takes an investment of time. Now, can we do that while we're binge-watching Breaking Bad on Netflix? Probably not. Not at the same time. Later it talks about teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. To teach someone about the Bible. Is there an assumption that you know about the Bible and you know the Lord? Have an intimate relationship with Him? Does that happen overnight? I would argue no. I would argue that takes investment of time. That takes you setting aside time to get to know the Lord, to study your Bible, and to to then share that with others and teach others. That's our command. We're told to make disciples and teach. Can we do that at the same time that we're binge-watching House of Cards on Netflix? For 14, 20 hours at a time? I feel like we get so distracted with technology sometimes that we lose sight of the mission. So, what I want to take a look at is uh, I want to start with a couple of positive aspects of technology because let's be honest technology is fun I've built my whole career around it and one of the first things I would tell you is it's it's an extensive set of resources to study God's word think about this for a minute how many of you have a bible app on your phone wow a lot do you know before we had phones I'm sure none of you remember this before we had phones we had to study God's word by pulling up big books, like a concordance. Anybody remember these big concordances we carried around? I was in my parents' library last night in their bookshelf, and I spotted this, and I'm like, oh, that's, man, we used to carry that. I carried this around to Bible studies sometimes. We don't have to do that anymore. We've got a phone, right? You've got an unlimited set of resources. You can go to BibleGateway.com and look up almost anything you want to look up. The amount of resources available to us because the technology at our fingertips is staggering. Any of us could read most of the works required to get through seminary. Now, you may not understand it without some explanation, but there's a ton of content online. Now, I do want to say one thing, though, about Bible apps on the phone. And this is a longer thing, and I promised myself I wasn't going to do this, but I have to do it. So there's a lot of benefits to Bible apps on the phone. Because when I travel, and I travel almost every week, I don't have to necessarily carry my big Bible, my study Bible with me when I travel because I've got enough resources here to do my quiet times and and to study the Word. But what I'll tell you is, let me illustrate with a story. A couple weeks ago, I'm sitting in church and uh, I'm looking over this lady's shoulder to the pastor who's who's preaching and is beginning the sermon. He pulls out the Bible and he says, let's read the passage together. And um, so she, she pulls out her phone or her Bible, great, and she's following along with the passage, great. So I'm, I'm right over her shoulder to see the pastor, and I kind of see her phone. Well, five minutes into the sermon, text message pops up. So she's 
she's uh, off looking at text messages. And by the way, this is a super godly woman. She's one of the staff members' wives, and she's an amazing Christian woman. So this isn't negative toward her, but the temptation is overwhelming when we get a text pop up to flip to it. And she's reading it, and then she replies to it in three minutes, back and forth, right? And then um, five minutes later, so now she's paying attention again, and five minutes later, um, Facebook message pops up. So she's, she noticed, and she's like, oh, well, and she pulls up Facebook, and then she's looking at the message. And um, now this would never happen in this church, because Davin is so dynamic. <laughs> but in my church, this happened. And let me be honest, this wasn't just a distraction for her, and this went on and off the entire service. It was a distraction for me, because I have to look over her shoulder to see the pastor, right? And so I'm noticing He's her pulling up her phone again, and I'm like, what, what, what app is she looking at now? Right? I'm going I'm to use that when I go to Pelham. Um, so it's terribly distracting. It was distracting for her. So is there anything inherently wrong with a Bible app in church? No. But is it going to be a distraction for you? Then maybe it is wrong for you. I have a friend of mine, um, one of my young adults, who will not bring his phone into the building at all. He said, that is the devil's tool. How does he say it? That is the devil's tool to distract me personally. The phone will ring. He'll think he needs to check his email because he's expecting an email. Something. He just knows for him it's going to be a problem. He doesn't have the self-discipline himself to not pull out his phone when nothing else is going on look at it. So I say all that to say, man, what an amazing resource technology can be to study God's word but it can also be a distraction you need to decide for yourself how effective it can be in certain circumstances so um, the next one here says it's an enhanced way to communicate with other people I think you'd all agree one of the best parts about technology is we can communicate now super fast I don't have to know that I'm burning 30 minutes on the phone with somebody I can just send them a quick text right and then they text back what I need and we're done like it's an effective means of communication. And now we have things like Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook. And, and it's an amazing form of communication. So there's benefits to that. Now it can have downsides and we'll talk about those in a minute. Automation of our daily activities is another great example of technology. So in my home, um, how many of you have an Amazon Alexa? Anybody? A couple of people? So Amazon Echo, it's a little device from Amazon. You can speak to it and it can do different things. It'll tell you the weather. It'll tell you how much traffic there is to get to work that day. It's pretty cool, actually. But I've automated Alexa. She's connected to my TVs and my lights, and I can give her commands, and she does a jig in the kitchen. I I don't know what she does. She does all kinds of stuff. So I've automated my light switches uh, in the house. So automation is fun and everybody who comes over to the house thinks it's super cool and and so it can be fun we have automation in our own lives just your email alone you automatically get all these emails and messages and communications that show up to you in your your phone and you can communicate with people and get information dynamically right during the middle of the day that's pretty amazing right there's absolutely benefits to the automation and technology what about a variety of ways to learn new things you can take entire 
college courses online with content provide stream to you. You can watch um, teaching activities online without having to get up and get in your car and go sit in a classroom and, and communicate. Not that it's wrong to go sit in a classroom, but it's amazing that we can now communicate and teach and, and you can learn in new and creative ways that we just didn't have access to before. Uh, part of our business, we have an education organization, and it's completely virtual. We can, we can teach people all over the world a number of courses. It's really amazing. So another um, benefit is transportation revolution. How many of you guys use Uber? I'm just curious. Is Uber big here? I Uber six to eight times a week. Now I travel, but I can't remember the last time I rented a car. Uber's amazing. It's just people like you and me who have a little free time on their hands and they are willing to drive me from A to B. And they get paid and it's all over a phone and no money changes hands. I don't have to physically tip them. All the payments through the app. It's, it's the most amazing business model I've ever seen. It's revolutionized the transportation industry. And once again, it's all done through a phone. I can get from A to B without having to have access to a car or call a friend and it's half the cost of a taxi. I don't know if you ever used Uber, but it's best benefit. It's half the cost of a taxi. So it's, it's pretty cool. That's one example of an industry that's been disrupted by technology. Airbnb is another one, right? Airbnb is as large as Marriott, but doesn't own a single asset. That's amazing because they're all digital. It's a benefit. So access to share the gospel across the globe. What a great benefit. Um, I was earlier tonight talking to my friend Bob Cleveland and he shared an article with me that I thought was really interesting. Now this article is from 1999 and he brought this in and it says, chat room is missions field for internet evangelist. And the picture has our Bob Cleveland there on a really old looking computer. <laughs> Not that Bob's old, Bob. The computer is old, and it says, Surfing for Lost Souls. Bob Cleveland, a deacon and longtime member of First Baptist Pelham, spends about two or three hours a day sharing his faith through the internet, doing what he calls a ministry anointed by God. Just one example of how we can use technology, the internet, to share the gospel. In that example, he gets online and just communicates with people, builds relationships, and helps them with issues. That's pretty cool. The, the internet is an amazing tool to communicate. Think of um, Secret Church. How many of you guys did Secret Church with David Platt over at Brook Hills? Really amazing um, experience where he crams a ton of biblical knowledge into six hours. And the last ones he's done have streamed to almost 50 countries. His audience started as just Brook Hills as a church, expanded to Birmingham, expanded statewide, and then they used technology to expand it globally. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. Now, would you guys agree that there's a negative side to technology? I think you probably would. So one of the negative sides to technology is it can bring a non-biblical worldview into your home. What specifically brings a non-biblical worldview into your home? I would suggest that TV. How many shows on TV really have a biblical worldview? It's hard to find them. 
you know, my, my daughter and I are big into the superhero movies. My youngest daughter, let me clarify, my oldest daughter is not remotely interested in superhero movies. But my youngest daughter and I have this thing, and we watch all the Avengers and all that stuff. And so we got really into Supergirl, right? Uh, the TV show. And it was a good show, and, and it had a good storyline, and Supergirl's not a character we've seen much in the last many years. And so um, it was one of our favorite shows. It was kind of our show we did together. But then in season two, they, they kind of twisted things around. They introduced um, a homosexual character for no reason whatsoever. Like, it had nothing to do with the plot line. And my daughter and I talked about it, and we decided together that probably that wasn't a show we should watch anymore. We should just put our foot down and say, we're not going to support that particular show because of something they're promoting as okay that the Bible says is sinful. Now, that's one example. But we made a stand, and we just stopped watching Supergirl, which was hard because we liked the show. So I would suggest to you that there's music that comes into your home that could be unbiblical and bring a non-biblical worldview. The internet, with all that comes with it, can bring a non-biblical worldview. And the question is, do you know what your family members are consuming? Do you even know? We're going to look at some ways you can know a little bit later tonight and hopefully help in that area. But there's several other negative aspects to the internet. One is that our families are being tempted in really interesting and unique ways. So here's a couple of examples. Obviously, instant access to pornography. When I was growing up, if I wanted to have access to that, I had to get on my bike and ride to a convenience store and maybe see a, a magazine with a, a, a biker magazine with a bikini girl on the front. Um, nowadays, a 12-year-old boy can pull up his phone as cellular connection and access internet porn instantly. What do we do about that? that? That's not healthy. That's not good. Are we putting rules in place to prevent that? I'm going to talk a little bit later at the end about some ideas for you to consider to help with that problem. But the access that the internet provides to bring a non-biblical worldview into our families is unprecedented today. Um, there's several others here. It's easy to scam others or buy illegal products. This is actually pretty interesting. Um, how many of you have ever heard of the dark web? Anyone? How many of you actually understand it? It's a whole different thing. So in my business, unfortunately, I interact in some ways with the dark web. Think about the surface web. Think about an iceberg, right? Big iceberg. where only 15% is above the waterline. That's what we call the surface web. That's all the websites you go to. Google.com, Amazon.com, that's the surface web, 15%. Then you've got an additional, the rest of it, except for 4% at the bottom. I'm not going to do math in front of you because that's a bad plan. <laughs> the rest of that underwater is what we call a deep web. The deep web is all those sites that you can't search for with Google. But they're not bad. This is your company's intranet. This is all the, the files on your own computer at your house. Um, Google can't find them, but they're on the internet technically, but they're just not searchable, right? And we call that the deep web. It's all fine. It's just not accessible unless you know a username and password. And then at the very bottom of the iceberg is 4%. It's called the dark web. And the dark web is a marketplace where you have to have a special browser to access, and you have to access it a special way. And it is a place where they um, commerce and, and buy and sell people, Drugs, identities for identity theft, um, and all sorts of terrible things. 
Um, a lot of these marketplaces are actually run by state-sponsored uh, organizations. And um, it, it's a very tricky place to be. What I would tell you is if you have ever thought of dabbling in the dark web, stop immediately and just don't. There are things you don't know that make it extremely dangerous, and there's no way for you to interact with the dark web in a positive way that will have a positive outcome, I assure you. So, but, but there's a lot of people who do. I know 14-year-olds who will spend $10 to buy a special type of attack that will knock their friend's house off the internet so they, they win a Call of Duty game. They're playing over Xbox. 10 bucks. I can knock my buddy offline so I win the tournament. 10 bucks. So there's an enticement for young people to play on the dark web, and I'm telling you it's extremely dangerous and we shouldn't be doing it. Um, kids spend hours immersed in violence. I think you would agree with video games, with movies. How hard is it to control and know what your kids are watching on TV, what video games they're playing? The, the question is how engaged are we in knowing? It's possible to know, but are we asking? Are we looking? Are we flipping through the games next to the Xbox every once in a while? Looking on the back to see what the ratings are? I mean, like, our kids, I'm telling you, are immersed in violence all the time today. And that is absolutely impacting them. Some of these other things here, um, cyberbullying is a huge one. I'll show an interesting statistic on that in a few minutes. But cyberbullying is when one person talks down to another on the internet. Maybe it's over a Snapchat. Maybe it's over an email. Maybe it's something someone posts on a website or a blog. But when you belittle someone else online in an anonymous, seemingly anonymous way, that's cyberbullying. And it's an epidemic in this country. I'll show you some stats on that in just a minute. It's possible for you to browse anonymously online, which is not very good. On your phone, um, you guys probably know, if you have an iPhone or Android, in Safari, as an example, is a private browse mode, which doesn't track where you go and what you do. That is not a good thing to know in the back of your head as you're surfing because it creates temptation to go look at things you shouldn't be looking at, thinking that, well, maybe no one can track me. Right? There's actually ways to track you, by the way, so just be aware. But um, um, lastly on here, social media creates a loss of interpersonal skills. How many of you have been at a restaurant and seen four teenagers sitting around a table texting each other? You seen that? I saw that about three weeks ago at a restaurant in Phoenix, and I literally almost, I, my wife was holding me back. To, I was going to go sit down next to them and just start a conversation. Like, come on, people. Use your mouth. So this, 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 is, this is a real issue. I know a lot of students who struggle with interpersonal skills because most of their communication time is, is over an application where they feel a little bit anonymous. They may not be anonymous because people know who they are, but because you're not facing someone face-to-face, -face, you get that feeling that you're anonymous, and it emboldens you to do things and to say things that you probably wouldn't do face-to-face. -face. And it's a, it's a problem. Are we talking to our teenagers about that problem? Are we helping them to shut down a little bit from online so that they can interact in different ways? Um, it, it's scary. Now, one of the, the other ones here that I'll throw up is that technology can distract you away from spending time with the God who loves you. And this is back to the mission. I personally will admit to you that I get distracted with technology. I have a lot of access to 
fancy technology. And I get sucked in sometimes into how it works and, and all those things. And, um, and, and it's a problem for me. And it, it's a problem for a lot of people. A little later tonight, we're going to talk about social media and its impact on families. The addiction aspect of that. It's a distraction. And we need to be vigilant. We need to be vigilant. Here's a couple of statistics that are interesting. And I'm not going to read all of these statistics to you. But I do want to share just a couple of things. Um, teens are online an average of five hours a day. Now this, these were uh, information collected by TeenSafe. Uh, at the end of my presentation, I'm going to leave you with some resources, and TeenSafe is one of them. It's a great website with a tremendous amount of content and information that you can use to help you know how to protect your families digitally. But um, there, five hours a day is a lot of distraction from doing things that could be more productive. 20% of teens have engaged in sexting. 20%. This one's interesting. 16% um, of people have had their email or social media account hijacked. That's kind of a lot of people. I would even go as far, I don't know the parameters of this specific statistic, but I know that um, everyone in this room, probably some exceptions of course, but our identities have been bought, stolen already, and bought and sold on the dark web so many times we can't even count it. Now that does not mean that someone's actually taken your identity and tried to do something malicious with it. But because of breaches like Yahoo, over a billion accounts stolen from Yahoo over a couple of years. A billion. That's a huge part of the world. Um, breaches like the Office of Personnel Management, which is a military uh, group that keeps track of, of uh, employment records and, and military uh, records, they were breached and all their data was taken, including your fingerprints. So our data is out there. It's being bought and sold and traded in huge bulk, bulk loads of, of identities. And, and so it's, it's something we need to be aware of because we need to be checking our credit reports and doing some specific things to know if someone is going to use one of the identities that's been stolen. So we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but man, is it a real threat. Our teenagers are struggling with a lot of these activities. As you look at some of these other things, it says uh, of kids who receive sexual solicitation online, 50% actually post personal information to the person that's soliciting them. That's scary. Are we teaching our kids? Beware of strangers online. The problem is, kids are taught that the more connections I have in my social media account, the better it is. The bigger the number, I can brag about that at school. Well, they have no idea who they're friends with in Instagram and in Snapchat and whatever. They're just communicating with these people. And you don't know who's on the other end of the line and they're going to ask innocuous questions. And before you know it, kids are supplying information like, oh yeah, I work out after school at this soccer field and I go to this church and I go to this school. And before you know it, they've given that person so much information. We need to be teaching our children that not everybody you communicate with online is legit. And that it's not a matter of just not talking to the stranger who pulls up in a car in the front yard like it was when I was growing up. It's you need to be wary of who you're talking to online. We have to teach our kids these things. Now, I think you guys would agree that um, the internet can be dangerous. So what I'm going to do is a little demonstration. Now, um, when you go to speaker camp, whatever that is, they teach you, whatever you do, don't do a technology demonstration in front of a large audience because it will probably go bad. <laughs> and uh, experience tells me that I probably shouldn't do it. But 
we're in church, right? So nothing's going to go bad in church. <laughs> so what I want to do for a second is uh, I'm going to flip over to a web browser and hope this works. Let's see what happens. So what I've done, a little known to you when you walked in the room, I have a little device here. And what this device, from one of my friends, <laughs> what it does, and of course, look what happens. This is why you don't do technology demos. So what I'm going to do is plan B, because I'm no idiot. So what this little device does is it's a man-in-the-middle attack. And you had no idea this was sitting in the room the whole time when you walked in. It's probably a little hard for you to see, but if you look at the red X up at the top, see it says the number 27? That's how many people's cell phones in the audience have connected to my device. And you didn't know it. Kind of scary, huh? So here's the way it works. Let me explain. I'm going to go back up a little bit farther and show you how this works. Here we go. Normally, what happens with your phone is all the time, your phone is sending out a beacon request that says, hey, home, are you there? Hey, work, are you there? School, are you there? Starbucks, you there? It's sending out a beacon all the time. And when you walk in your home, your home router says, oh, yeah, I'm here, and they connect, right? That's the picture up there. So your phone is asking school, are you there? When you get to school, your, your phone just auto-connects, and you don't have to do a thing. Now you're on the Internet, right? Super convenient, right? But here's the downside. When a guy like me comes around with a device like this, what happens is your phone says, hey, school, are you there? School, are you there? And this device goes... Sure, I can be school for you. And then when someone else says, uh, hey, are you there, Starbucks? Are you there, Starbucks? My device says, yeah, I can be Starbucks for you. Connect up. And then for someone else, their phone says, hey, Marriott, you there? Marriott, you there? And my device says, sure, I can be Marriott for you. Go ahead and connect. So then you come through me on the way to the internet because I'm connected to the real internet on the back end and you never know it. You're just going through me for everything you're doing and you never know. In this case, 28 people are connected through my device without even knowing it. And it only took about 15 minutes. If we sat here a little longer, it would spin up to 100 people. So, what do you do for this? This is the threat. This is one example of one threat that is, is in this room that you didn't even know about. And what I'm here to tell you is there's many types of threats out there all the time. And we have to be vigilant to know how to protect our families from these things. Now, in this example, let me assure you, I'm not collecting any information. So several of your phones have, have uh, connected to my device. I am not connected out to the Internet, so I'm not passing anything along. I do not have any recording software on my laptop. And uh, I asked an FBI buddy of mine if I can even do this, and he said yes. So um, what's that? Awesome. Is your phone say Chick-fil-A? Winner, winner, chicken dinner. So here's what just happened. Here's what happened. 
His phone previously at some point in the past is connected to Chick-fil-A. And so when his phone said, hey, Chick-fil-A, you there? My device said, sure, I can be Chick-fil-A for you. And it connected him as Chick-fil-A. Now, how would he know that he's being hacked right now? Because he looks down at his phone and he sees that it says Chick-fil-A. You shouldn't be in Chick-fil-A. We're in the middle of church. Right? And it's Sunday. Correct. Can't be Chick-fil-A today. That's great. I like that. So, in this case, there's a couple of things you would do to prevent this type of attack. Number one, pay attention to what your Wi-Fi is connected to. If it says Chick-fil-A and you're sitting in the annex, probably something's not right. The second thing you do is don't keep your Wi-Fi turned on on your phone if you don't need it. Okay? So, when you're out walking around in public, when you're at the mall, when you're at the grocery store, turn your Wi-Fi off because... To test this, as an example, I went and sat in a Fat Cats last Saturday. That's like a Dave and Buster's in Phoenix. And I got myself a Coke, and I sat down in a chair, and I had my little device, and I had 28 people connect to me in 10 minutes. They had no idea. Now, once again, I didn't record anybody. I wasn't doing it maliciously. I was trying to understand the technology, because we do this, my team does this kind of stuff as demonstrations a lot. So my point here is, There's a lot of danger out there. So the question is, how do we raise our families in this danger? And that's what we want to address tonight. So there's a couple of things that our kids are doing online, more than just these attacks. But there's things that we need to be aware are happening, like pornography. And we've talked about that a little bit already. But that's a huge problem, huge problem huge problem, especially for our young men. But I'll tell you that it's staggering how many young ladies are involved in pornography as well. So that's a huge issue, and we need to find ways to harness technology to protect our children from that, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. We have uh, photos. Kids take a lot of pics, and that's great. Like, there's nothing wrong with taking pictures, um, but have, have, you guys probably don't know what a selfie is, but I hear that that's where people take pictures of themselves. Think about that for a minute. What is going through someone's mind when they pick up their phone and they have to take a selfie? And do you know people who take a selfie every day? So I'm going to step on some toes here, which is why I'm here, right? I don't go to this church. What do I care? (laughs) So, So think about the psychology of a young girl who takes Facebooks or takes um, selfies and posts them to their friends all the time. Why are they doing that? Because they're looking for validation, right? Which is natural, by the way, for all of us. We all want validation. But that's such an opportunity for someone else to throw one bad comment, and it will destroy a young girl. And that has happened in my family with my daughter. A lot of times it goes well, and people are like, oh, you're so cute. And it takes that one person to say, where'd you get that dress, right? People should not be getting their self-image from their selfie picture. But we do. It's a temptation, and it's there. And we need to know it's there, and we need to counsel our children that their, their hope doesn't come in a Facebook picture. It comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the hope. But we have to train our children in this way. We're going to look at a verse that shows that in just a minute. This is just a real, a real challenge. Texting. Teens send 3,800 texts a month on average. Talk about a distraction. Now, in one sense, that's how they communicate, and that's great. But it, we just need to know that's how it works. Downloading contents is, is huge. Hacking is something some people do. Cyberbullying is an activity. 
Um, one of the ones here that's really interesting to me is, is hidden phone apps. You guys ever heard of hidden phone apps? Let me show you this because I think this is uh, worth people knowing. So um, I call them alter ego apps. So as an example, I've listed just four up here. And by the way, all of your teenagers know what these are, so I'm not giving away secrets here. But this first one here, Hide, hide It Pro. When you look at your kid's phone, which, which you're doing, right? Right? You're, you're, you're looking at your child's phone, right? So is it wrong to look at your kid's phone? Is that violating their privacy? No. Now, I hear some teenagers saying yes. You must trust but verify. You ever heard that phrase? Trust but verify? They're teenagers. They're still learning. They're growing. They need guidance. They need guardrails like at the bowling alley. You need to be you need to be watching their phones. So while you're watching your phone and you're seeing an app called Hide It Pro, it looks like an audio app. It looks like it's a music app, right? And so you're going to just scroll past it. But in reality, if you open this thing and you press what? You hold the audio manager title and then a lock screen comes up and you tap in a thing. Then it's got hidden photos and hidden messages that they can communicate with one another. Uh, Vaulty here at the bottom, not only does it require a sequence of characters, it, it, it will take a picture of you if you type the wrong password. So if you're trying to get in your kid's phone and they're hidden app and it'll take a picture and they know who did it later. Like this is this stuff's sophisticated. There's one called KYMS that looks like a calculator app. How many of you would take a second glance as you're flipping through your kid's phone, which you're doing, right? And 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 how how many of you would take notice of a calculator app? Nobody. But if you type a sequence of characters, there's hidden messages and there's hidden whatever. My point is, your teenagers know how to do all this stuff. Do you know that this is out there? When you're looking at your child's phone and holding them accountable as you raise them, do you know to look for this kind of stuff? Now, this is only a handful of them. This is some of the more popular ones. There's, there's many more. Social media is another huge, um, huge topic. So um, I want to spend just a minute on social media addiction. So, how many, how many social media accounts do you have, right? We've got Facebook, we've got Instagram, we've got, uh, we've got Snapchat, and we've got all sorts of things. So, on these apps, there's a study that was done, a poll of teenagers, and it had some really interesting information here. Look at this. 50% of teens feel like they're addicted to their mobile device. 50% of teens admitted it. Okay? Now, here, here's the definition of that. 80% of teens said that they check their phones every hour. Like, like they can't not check it. 72%, they felt the need to immediately respond to text and social media messages. It's an impulse, like, like the lady in church, right? It pops up in front of you. You feel compelled to look at it right then and there. 36% of parents said they argue with their child daily about device use. Is that healthy to have to do in your home? I get it. I have that discussion in my own home. 77% of parents feel their children get distracted by their device and don't pay attention at home. Remember as we talk about staying on mission for Christ and all the distraction? Teens are online an average of five hours a day. Like this is a challenge. What do we do about this? Now, 
What's interesting here is this research in Chicago University said that social media addiction can be stronger than cigarette or alcohol addiction. It's, it's the similar chemical reaction in the brain that feels the need to open that text. Now, let me step on some toes. This is not just teens. I would tell you that many adults are addicted to social media as well. Let me tell you a quick story. A couple weeks ago, my church was doing um, an event. We called it Rewind. So it was a look at the past 12 months and then a little bit of a vision for the, the, the coming 12 months. And so during that time, um, uh, we did a little game at the beginning, right, just to get, get, get everything going. And so we had gift cards, and our student pastor was up there getting another room going, and um, they would ask questions. And if you met the question, you could run up, and the first person up would get a gift card, right? So one of the questions that popped up is, the highest Candy Crush level. So, shocked by me, not really, <laughs> Brittany, easy, my wife jumps up <laughs> and runs to the front to get her Starbucks gift card, which is her other vice, and, um, and so she, uh, the pastor said, okay, what level do you have? And she said, 700. And I'm thinking, I'm on like 48. I can't get past 48. <laughs> and so um, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is, I can't believe she told the whole church that. And so then this other girl jumps up and ran up. And she's like, oh no. And uh, pastor says, how, how many, what level are you on? And she said, 1,500. 1,500. Now, for any of you who play Candy Crush, you can imagine the time investment to get to level 1500. I didn't even know there could be a level 1500 of Candy Crush. I didn't know there could be a 700. But um, social media addiction can be a real thing. And game addiction on your phone, technology addiction can be a real thing. And the question is, what could you be doing with that time if we weren't spending that much time online, in our games, on social media, it's a, it's a challenge. It's a challenge for a lot of us. I, have, I, I struggle with this with my email, right? Because I average, give or take, 300 emails a day with work. And so to process that amount of email, um, I got to be on it, right? Because then tomorrow I got another 300 coming. And probably only 20% of those are something I have to do, respond to. But that's 20%. So here's a tip, by the way, for you who work in an environment with email. So you can, in Outlook, create a rule that says if your name is in the to line of the email, meaning the email is directly to you, then it can go into one subfolder under your inbox called, like, Actions. And then if you're in the CC, the carbon copy line of the email, you can have the rule automatically send your email to a different folder called to do later or something. That way, if you only have a few minutes and you need to look at your email, at least you can just go to the high priority stuff. There's things that people wrote directly to you, not stuff people copied you on so you just be aware of it. Just a tip for those of you who are in a work environment and struggle like I do with email. So, um, so social media is, addiction is a challenge. And so what I want to do is just spend a minute and, uh, and do a little bit of a Jeff Foxworthy type thing around social media. 
You ready? So, here we go. Ten signs of social media or phone addiction. If you pull out your phone before the main course at a restaurant, you might be addicted to technology. If the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning is reach for your phone, you might be addicted to social media. Am I stepping on toes? I hope, I hope so. That's why I came, really. If, you ta- if talking in the car is a thing of the past in your family, you know what I'm talking about. Someone's over there. You might be addicted to technology. If you miss the end of your child's game or performance because you're posting a video clip to Facebook or Insta, you might be addicted to technology. I'm guilty of this. I did this just a couple of months ago, my daughter's ballet performance. I got a little bit of it, and then I'm heads down, and my wife got on to me. If you cannot visit the restroom without using the 90 available seconds to investigate how many people liked your last photo, you might be addicted to technology. And as Donnie pointed out to me earlier this week, I don't mean taking a photo of you taking the bathroom. When, if when someone at work asks you how your weekend was and you get irritated because they didn't just look at your Instagram post, you might be addicted to technology. If you like your own updates on Facebook or Insta <laughs> and favorite your own tweets, you might be addicted to technology. If you urgently send Facebook requests to family and friends to send you Candy Crush lives... If you don't know, when you play Candy Crush, every so often you get to a level and it blocks you for three or four days, unless, of course, someone else sends you a life. I hear it's frustrating. I don't know. (laughs) If you use the phrase hashtag in a normal conversation, (laughs) you might be addicted to technology. (laughs) Apparently damaged. That's dangerous, I get it. If you created a Twitter or Facebook account for your pet, <laughs> my daughters have created an Instagram account for our hedgehog. Why? I don't even know. By the way, side note, uh, I learned today I'm allowed to take side notes, because Davin did this morning. Don't get a hedgehog, please. They're the worst pet ever. They sleep all day. They're up all night. They run five miles a night in their little wheel. Like, it's terrible. Terrible idea. You can't love them. They're prickly. All right. Off the aside. Here's the point. This is kind of fun. But the challenges in a family unit are real. They're real. We get so distracted with technology sometimes, and specifically social media, that we forget to interact with our family. We forget to interact with those around us. And what kind of opportunity are we missing to train our children, to witness to our friends, to minister to those in need around us that are hurting? What are we missing? Because we're spending so much time buried with our heads in the phone. I'm a big fan of technology, right? I I love my phone and I love all these fun toys but 
I try very hard, and I'm not always successful, but I try very hard to control how much time I spend there. So um, I'd, like to, I'd like to give you a couple of ideas or thoughts on our responsibility biblically to deal with some of these threats that we've talked about because there's a lot. And number one is a really important one, and that is that leaders lead. So as I'm talking to family units here, your family has a leader. Now, it may not be defined as a husband and wife where the man is the, the leader in the family. Maybe you're a single mom raising children, and in that scenario, you're the leader of your family, okay? But the point I want to make to you this morning is that leaders lead, and there's two great verses that talk to this, and I want to look at them for just a minute. Um, because when we talk about leading in our homes, what we mean is that we are setting boundaries for our children. We are understanding enough of what our families are exposed to that we can help guide them, guardrails, away from some of the dangers. So let's look at two things. Number one is 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. And it says, He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household... How will he care for God's church? Now, you may read that and immediately tell me, yeah, but that verse was targeted at elders, which is another word for pastor, in a church, and this is a criteria for being an elder. So it's easy to dismiss this verse as not applying to most of us in the room. But here's what I want to tell you. If the, if the criteria for being an elder in a church is to, have, is to manage your household well, why would that not, that biblical godly principle, if God wants the people who lead his church to manage a good household, why would that not apply to every Christ follower in the room? How could that idea, that standard, we not, might not all be going after uh, a pastorship or, or to be an elder in a church, but we all are Christ followers just like that elder. And so if it's good enough for them to emulate Christ and to be a leader in their home and to manage their household well, I have to believe that's a godly principle that applies to us as well. Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Now, this is actually a difficult verse, and we could spend literally an hour talking about this passage. There's many um, thoughts about this. You may be a younger couple and you read this, young children, and you think, if I train my child correctly and I bring them to church and I do the right things, then they will be fine. This is like a guarantee that they'll be okay later. You may be older and you may have older children who've left your home and you found that those children did stray and they have not come back yet. And you might read this verse and get discouraged because I thought I did it right. I had my kids in school in church, and I, I prayed with them, and I ministered to them, and, and yet they've fallen away. And this is a bit of a difficult passage, but here's the truth that applies here. Two things. Number one, I would point out to you that Proverbs in general is not so much, if you look at the totality of the, of, of the, of the, uh, the book of Proverbs, it's not about promises as much as it is about principles. Godly general principles that we should live by as Christ followers. And, and the second thing I would point out is it's important in this passage, what this is saying is we, we have a responsibility to train our children in the way that they should go. And in general, as a general rule, if you train them that way, they won't depart from it. But the definition of train here is important. The idea of train is that you are repetitively teaching them something 
at length until it's reflex for them. So the question is, how much are we training our kids? Do we just drive them to church and drop them off and hope they're going to be fine when they get into their college years? Or are we repetitively teaching them God's word in a methodical way such that biblical concepts are reflexive for them? That's, I would submit that's training your child in the way they should go. I don't believe this is a promise because we all know people who are godly people that did the best they could and, and their children have, have struggled and fallen away. But I think as a general principle, this is very powerful. A second principle I think is worth looking at is to practice what you preach. And this one's hard. Let your kids see you make good media choices. If you think your children are not tuning into your Netflix account and seeing the kind of things you're watching, you're kidding yourself. They know. They know exactly what you're watching on your time. They know what movies you go to see. If you're telling them out of one side of your mouth to, to not watch certain types of shows, but then they know after you go to, they go to bed, you're watching those exact type shows, what message is it sending? We have to practice what we preach. And there's a couple of verses here that I think are really relevant. One is in James 1.22. It says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. What this is saying is that we can't just um, hear what the Bible says all the time and not put it into practice. The expectation is that if you are a Christ follower, that you will do what it says. That you will actively engage in the Word of God and that you will do what it says. And Scripture is full of commands like train up your child in the way that he should go. And we're going to look at a few others here in a minute. We need to be doers. This other verse in John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In deed and in truth. We need to not just tell people we love them, we need to show people we love them, right? This is a common principle. Um, actions speak louder than words. Have you guys heard that, that saying, obviously? Actions do speak louder than words. It is our responsibility to take the Word of God as we learn that and put it into practice. But we have to practice what we preach in our homes or our children will not follow. They just won't. So, another principle. Resist temptation by submitting now, this is harder than it sounds. I know that's a shock to everybody. But let me show you a couple of interesting verses. In James 4, 7, it says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, it sounds so simple. Just resist. Just resist. Resist temptation. Sweet. Someone just told me that years ago. It doesn't work that way, right? Resisting temptation is hard. But here's the beauty of Scripture. God doesn't just tell you to do something hard. He tells you how to do it. And the answer is right here. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. The question is, what does submit mean? And this is where it gets a little personal. Because I think in our society, it's popular to say we're Christians. We go to church. We know the, how to pray publicly. The question is, are you actually submitting? Because the biblical version of Christianity is that you set yourself apart and you actually submit everything you are to the Lord. Galatians 2.20 is a great verse. It says, I've been crucified with Christ. Crucified. 
That's violent. You're choosing this, by the way. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I. I'm not sitting on my own throne. But Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The whole concept of Christianity is submission to a holy God. Someone that we cannot possibly emulate. Right? We're supposed to be doers of the word and we're supposed to resist temptation. And the only way we can possibly do that is if we set God on the throne of our life and he gives us the power to resist temptation. You may tell me, but I am so caught up in addictions of many kinds. Maybe it's alcohol addiction. Maybe it's drug addiction. Maybe it's pornography addiction. Whatever your addiction is, you may have told me that for years you've struggled and you can't seem to resist the temptation. And I would tell you the answer is submission to the Holy Spirit. And that's hard. I'm not claiming it's easy, but that's the answer. We have to give everything we are to Christ. He needs to sit on the throne of your life. That's, that is how we resist temptation. Now, let's look at another principle here. We have to be obedient to God's Word. If we think that we're going to resist temptation by submitting to the Lord, that process happens through obedience. If we want to help our families with the challenge of technology, we need to be obedient to the Word He's already given us to give us a roadmap to do that. And He's absolutely given us some things. To be obedient to God's word, let's take a look at some, just a couple. We could spend hours here, but I want to pull out a couple of concepts here. In John 14, 15, it says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. A foundational concept here is the Bible clearly says, if you love me, if you have submitted your life to me, definition of submit meaning I put God on the throne of my life, not me on the throne of my life, then I'm going to obey his commands. The Bible says it. It's pretty clear. So now the question is, what are his commands? And let me give you one that I feel like is really important. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. Love is of God. Whoever loves has been born of God. And here's the really catchy one. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because he's love. So ask yourself, as you're interacting online on the internet with other people, through social media, through texting, through content you just put out there, through content you consume, are you loving other people as you do that? Are you using technology to love other people as Christ loved the church? Because if, if we struggle with the concept of loving other people, According to this, you don't know God because God is love. And if you've submitted to God and he's Lord of your life, you will understand the concept of love and that should flow out of your being. And that includes our digital lives because a lot of our interaction nowadays is online. Your emails you send and the text and, and so much of our life is digital. And so are we using that vehicle to love others, which is a command from God? It's an interesting question. I don't think I think about that often enough, to be honest. Let's look at one last principle. Christians should be an example of Christ. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 speaks to this. As we interact with people online, the question is, are we emulating Christ as we do it? Or are we cyberbullying? Are we interacting with websites we shouldn't interact with? Are we watching movies we shouldn't watch? 
Or are we trying to emulate Christ? Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, be imitators of God. This is pretty clear. Now, this verse is being spoken to Christians at a church. So the assumption here is that you're saved. And he says, therefore, for you who are saved, if you've submitted your life to Christ, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Walk in love. It says very clearly here we should be imitators of God. And what that looks like online could be something like communicating with somebody um, about an issue that they have. Earlier we talked about how Bob used to have a ministry where he communicated with people in need over chat rooms. Great concept. Um, I have, uh, I have a, an app we use, uh, Slack, in our young adult ministry to communicate with the young adults in my group. And guys will have issues. We have a couple getting married right now and they're having some struggles. And, and so uh, all week we've been like encouraging this guy and sending him Bible verses and, and, and helping him. You can use the internet to post content that's uplifting to others that you can go search for and find and read and be encouraged and understand what God's word has to say about a passage to encourage someone. There are so many ways we can leverage scripture to be imitators of God in loving other people online. But I feel like sometimes we use the, the, our social media accounts to get defensive to other people, right? We get, we get offended by things that they might post or say. And then we find ourselves not liking someone else. And then we defriend them. And that creates a complication in the relationship. And, and now things kind of go sideways. And now our opportunity to be on mission for Christ with that person is ruined. Because we get offended by things that are online. It can be dangerous, but it can be a huge benefit if we use the internet and use technology to communicate with others in a Christ-like way. If we're imitators of Christ, it could be a powerful tool. So if we take these five principles of living a, um, of, of our responsibility in dealing with our family, let's apply a couple of practical things on top of these principles, okay? So number one, I want to look at the fact that we have a responsibility in our families to cultivate character and virtue in our children. And there's lots of ways that we can do that, but here's a couple of things. Number one, we have to set a good example. We have to practice what we preach, right? Leaders lead, and the leader of the family needs to set rules for the family and then practice what they preach. That's critical, because I promise you, your children will sniff you out if you're not authentic. Much of the internet's pornographic, so we need to guard our children's access zealously. I'm going to spend just a minute or two in a minute on parental control apps for phones because I think it's a really important topic. and We don't have time to do a lot there, but I want to talk about it in just a minute. But it's our responsibility to think about how to limit our children's access. And by the way, not just our children. Maybe it's us too. Maybe we need to put guardrails up, put a computer in a family room, not off in the back room uh, where there's privacy, right? There's things we can do. We need to model respect for men and women in our home because that's one way to build virtue and character in our children because I think our culture is changing the shape of the role of men and women in society and moving that away from a biblical worldview. So for one thing, I would challenge you that we need to be thinking about the character of our children and what we can do to protect them as now we're in a digital world and things are a little different and you may not feel like you're real comfortable with all the things your children know how to do. 
So how do you protect them? Well, you need to ask for help from people who can help and set up guardrails, right? There's another concept here, building walls and setting boundaries. And just to take that a little bit deeper, we talk about putting the computer in a public place, but we need to show our kids what to do if they stumble on a bad website, right? Like, we need to identify, here's what I expect from you. If you see a site that has bad content, I expect you to, number one, click away immediately. Number two, come tell me, because you should figure out how your kid got to that, prop, that point so you can train them to not take that path again, right? You should teach your kids how to guard their privacy online. I can tell you firsthand that not everybody online is who they say they are. You might find some guy with a special device sitting in McDonald's while you're eating, doing things you don't even know is happening. Your privacy online is important, and we have to guard that zealously and not share too much information with people. Uh, if we had time, I would explain to you about people who are building digital profiles about all of us under the guise of helping market to us better because they know what your likes and dislikes are. And I would tell you all about how um, it's automated and it's building and building every year profiles of all of us. Um, who knows what that's used for in the future, but um, we need to guard our privacy. Um, we need to monitor our kids' social media accounts and friends list. This goes back to, are you watching your kids' phones? I'm going to look at some monitoring software in just a minute, but you ought to be looking through there, and let's look at the accounts. Uh, we, we've had to kick several kids off my daughter's social media accounts because they're, they're spewing hate. They're spewing bad content. On, on the account. And it happened so much, unfortunately, my daughter was kind of immune to it. And that's sad. So we go through there and we tell her we're going to wipe this person away because this isn't healthy. Like we shouldn't surround ourselves with this kind of content. Don't let your child take their phone to bed. Set time limits. Here's an idea. Keep a basket next to your bed with chargers on it and, and your kids have to, to come plug it in before they go to bed because I'll tell you what happens. Your kids... Sorry to let the cat out of the bag, guys. Your kids are sitting up from 10 to 1 a.m. online, talking with people, interacting. Bad stuff tends to happen later at night, online too. So if that's a concern of yours, one idea is to collect the phones and put them, in, put them next to the bed. Um, another thought here, warn your kids about talking to strangers online. We talked about this earlier. It's no longer the guy that passes in a car in front of the house. It's someone online who might be 25 years old and not a 14-year-old girl. It's hard to tell. It really is. Collaborate to define a smartphone agreement with your kids. Do it together. I'm not suggesting you go sneak in your kid's room at night and take their phone when they don't know about it and look through it. I'm suggesting that you sit down and build a smartphone agreement and say, here's our rules we're going to have in our home. Here's when you're going to use your phone and when you're not and how you're going to use it and how you're not. And they should know that you're going to be looking. There's no need to keep this a secret. It's called accountability, right? We do that in our home. It works great. Now, if you go to a 16 or 17-year-old and you've never done this before and all of a sudden you say, all right, need you give me, give me your phone, that might not go so well. But if you start early and that's a part of your process in your family, it, it doesn't have to be a problem. Kids need the accountability. Lastly, um, filtering technology. There's a couple of types that we're going to look at in a second, but it's important sometimes for us to have a little help in monitoring, 
because sometimes it's hard to look through everything and to spot all the right things. And so there's software we can uh, use to help us along that path. And we'll talk about it in a second. Uh, briefly, I'm going to mention ship-shaped social media behavior. These are just a couple of thoughts for you. And, and there, there's a lot potential here. But just quickly, I want to leave with you. to in, in your Instagram account and in your Facebook account, like check your privacy settings frequently because they'll change their terms of agreement and they'll reset defaults. And sometimes your access will change for people to see your content. And so every once in a while, you just want to go through there and check your settings, your privacy settings. Make sure that you're sharing information the way you expect that you're sharing information. It's worth doing that twice a year, maybe. Keep it clean online because stuff never gets deleted, really. So companies now, when they hire, oftentimes require you to give them your social media account so they can check your history and your post and see like what your history's been about. What kind of person really are you? Because it's really hard to hide who you are online because we tend to post things that interest us. Davin covered this really well this morning. The things we worship are hard to hide. And oftentimes we see those same things show up on social media. So if you want to know somebody, used to, you know, we used to say, I can tell exactly what you're like by looking at your checkbook. Remember that? Nowadays, I can tell you exactly who you worship, what you worship by looking at your Instagram account. So maybe that's you. Selfies. Right? We talked about that this morning too, didn't we, Devin? Don't share too much information online. We talked about that earlier. People out there collecting information, sometimes for malicious purposes, you just got to be careful what you share. Don't put your home address on your Facebook account. Don't click on random links. Did you know that like 70 to 80% of malware is installed on a computer or a phone because you click a link in a pop-up message or in a Facebook advertisement that installs malware on your phone. 70 to 80% of malware is installed that way. So it's important that we look at the hyperlinks in our emails, in our texts, and you, you do the sniff test. Does that smell right? Like if they misspell stuff in the email, it's probably from Russia and it's because they don't know the language. Don't click on it. Like that's really common. If you really read closely a lot of the malware emails, things are misspelled. So if it doesn't look right, don't click on it. Your bank is never going to send you an email and ask you to click a link to log into the bank. They're not going to do that because that's a horrible security practice. So if you get that email, know that it's a, it's, it's a virus. Here's one. I got a phone call. I love this. I got a phone call on Friday, and this guy's like, uh, he's from India. So, uh, hello, you have a virus on your computer. Really? Oh, w which computer? Well, on your Windows computer. Okay, I have eight. Which one is it? <laughs> oh, it, it's, it's your Windows computer. And so I, I love these calls. And so I'm like, okay, great, great. I found my Windows computer. So tell me what to do. What do I do? And, and he said, oh, you need to run this command. And he has me bring up a command window. And he has me go to a web address. And he wants me to download an executable on my computer so he can find the problem for me. And I, I'm like, okay, okay, so let me get this straight. You want me to go to this link so you can download malware on my computer? Okay, I'm there. He's like, no, no, sir. I'm not going to download malware on your computer. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, well, sure you are. But, but that's okay. Let's keep going. <laughs> and he literally, this is a true story. He literally put the phone down and said, I got a computer expert. <laughs> and he brings the phone back. He's like, sir, I'm going to have to go. And he hangs up. <laughs> so 
They're scams all the time. If it doesn't pass the sniff test, don't, don't click it. Don't accept friend requests if you don't know who the person is. I know it's popular to have as many connections as possible. But there's a danger in that, and we just need to be cautious. Um, this Very quickly, I'm not going to spend much time here because I'm, I'm low on time, but um, for safety purposes, I want to give you five browser plugins. Now, let me explain what that is. You guys know that when you connect to the internet and you go to google.com or amazon.com, you're using a web browser to connect to that website. And common browsers I have up here, they're like Internet Explorer and Firefox and Safari, what I'm suggesting to you is that there's plugins, additional programs you can add to your browser to give it additional functionality and capability. And they're free. So I'm going to give you five quick ones. And I'll leave this as a reference for you, but these are really good. So Adblock Plus is a plugin to your browser that will block access to pop-up windows. Because remember, a lot of the bad links are in pop-ups. So we can get rid of the pop-ups. You take away a lot of the temptation to click something you shouldn't click on. So that, that's one. Another good one is HTTPS Anywhere. Now, the, now you know how you, you have a URL at the top of your browser, www.google.com? Well, at the front of that URL, it's HTTP or HTTPS. It stands for Hypertext Something Protocol. So the S stands for Secure. So you always want to see an S up there. But what this little plugin does is it makes sure that an S is up there. So most websites have both an unencrypted version and an encrypted version. And you never kind of know which one you're going to get. This, this, this plugin simply makes sure you're connecting in an encrypted way. Because if I'm encrypting my traffic, someone can't eavesdrop on it. Now I have a way with my little device here actually to force you to get to an unencrypted site. That way I can steal your passwords. But this browser plugin will prevent that from happening. So it's, it's a good one. Um, Web of Trust is an interesting plugin that just prevents you from going to websites that have bad content. It's good for your family. Another good one is Privacy Badger. It prevents people from tracking you. Have you ever gone out to, uh, to Google and you've Googled for like an air conditioner and then you go to Amazon and the exact air conditioner you Googled is right there in Amazon? Or That's a bad example because I don't think they sell air conditioners. But you get the idea. How does that work? Well, because Google and Amazon share information about your browsing history. What this does is it prevents them from sharing your information about where you go. Keeps your private data private. And lastly is password managers. Here's a great best practice. Passwords. Let's talk about this for a second because this is one great way to protect your family. Passwords should be at least eight characters if there are seven characters or less, I can crack it in about an hour with a modern laptop. If it's eight, it, it, it would take me a week. If it's nine or more, it would just wait too long for me to mess with. So passwords need to be at least eight characters. Number two, passwords need to be uppercase, lowercase, numbers, and special characters. Pound signs, ampersand, you know, special characters. If it's not a combination then it's much easier for me to attack. And if you use a word in the dictionary, I've just dropped it to five minutes or less for me to crack it. Because first thing I do is I load a dictionary file that tries every word in a dictionary. And yes, I replace your threes for E's, uh, your E's for threes, and I replace your ones with I's. So if you're trying to get tricky, it's not tricky. Like, we've been doing that a long time. 
my password cracking tools can get around that. So you need to have long passwords, uppercase, lowercase. And now you might tell me, well, how in the world am I going to keep track of these crazy passwords? A password manager. That's what it's for. You need one password. And inside of it is an encrypted database of all your accounts and passwords. I have 500 usernames and passwords in my password manager. Now, obviously, the password on my password manager is really good. Um, but it's super encrypted. They're very safe-ish. Nothing's really foolproof, but it's very safe. And that way, I can actually have good passwords. Another trick I'll tell you is you need to change your password on critical accounts, like bank, Facebook, um, Amazon, anywhere that has your credit card data. You need to change those passwords every single quarter, and here's why. If I want to hack into your Apple account, some people ask me, how hard is it to crack into an Apple phone? Well, Apple phone's pretty hard. Um, they're encrypted, right? Um, but if I want to hack your Apple phone, I'm not going to go into your Apple phone. It's a much easier way to do it. All I have to do is go to the dark web and buy a list of a compromised usernames and passwords from lesser secure websites. And nine times out of ten, most of you in this room probably use the same password on your very insecure website as you do on your bank. I mean, not you guys, but like other people. <laughs> so I just have to go buy a list of accounts off the dark web for 50 bucks, and then I write a little program that's going to cycle through all of them on wellsfargo.com and on paypal.com and on amazon.com until I get a hit. And then I'm in. And including your Apple Cloud account. I can go to your cloud, Apple Cloud website and I can try your passwords until I find one that works and I can get into your phone through the cloud. So can I, do, I, do I bother trying to crack the encryption on an iPhone? No, but that's not needed. 50 bucks gets me everything I need on, on the dark web. So here's the point. Change your passwords on your critical accounts every quarter because when something's breached, and a bad guy steal data from some other website, if you're using the same password that now is out there in the wild, then they can log right in. But if you change your password on critical sites, I don't change my password on every website I have, just the main ones, right? Um, and I keep track of them in a password manager. So some, some helpful tips. Hopefully that's helpful. Um, uh, parental control software. My last couple of minutes here, let me just say a couple of words. And we don't have time to get into this very deep. But there's a lot of opportunity for us to install monitoring software or control software on our kids' phones or on the home family computer. Monitoring software monitors what you do but doesn't control anything. It, it records text and it records websites and all that. Control software actually uh, locks down the computer for certain times during the day, prevents certain apps from being installed. Like it does active prevention kind of stuff. So some examples of, um, of some software that does this are in three categories. There's software that can protect your desktop laptop and some that protect your phones and some that protect your, like, your home network. And as I said before, this is one of those topics that we could spend like an hour on and talk about the pros and cons of these things, but we don't have the time for that. What I want to do is leave you with this list and suggest that it's worth your time to Google for these names and make a good decision for your family because these all have different capabilities and different features, and it depends on your situation and, and what you're trying to protect before you would know which one of these to use. So it's hard for me just to make a general recommendation here because they are all different. For instance, it's easy to control the Wi-Fi in your home, 
But your kids have access to cellular data, which is a whole different way to connect to the internet from your Wi-Fi in your house. So you can easily lock down the Wi-Fi, but if they can just go out through Verizon, then how do you connect that? Well, Verizon and T-Mobile and Sprint, they all have software that's listed up there that can give you some parental control capability for your internet connection through your uh, cell phone provider. So this is a really complex topic, but I just want to leave you with a couple of names that you can research and, and decide what works best for your family. Um, one thing I will mention is that Android and, and iPhones are different. Android's an open platform, so you can do more to control an Android phone and to monitor an Android phone. An iPhone works pretty solid, and people in the room know that was very painful for me to say, because they know I hate Apple, as I wear my Apple Watch and have an Apple iPhone. Um, Apple products just work because they're locked down. And there's very little developers can do to inter interact with it. So you can't monitor and manage them quite as well as you can an Android phone. But you can absolutely get the job done. So just know there's differences. Be on the lookout for that as you search, search around for those things. So as I wrap up tonight, um, I want to leave you with a couple of quick tips. Safety tips on the internet. And, and hopefully these are interesting. Um, number one, patch your computers please early and often. Um, uh, there's an interesting story. The NSA lost their cyber toys. The NSA is the National Security Agency. They're the secret guys, spies, that, that listen in on communication overseas. They would never monitor us as citizens. Cover. Come see me later. Um, the NSA lost their cyber toys. Someone hacked the NSA, and they've now released their tools that they use to hack countries is now freely available on the internet to anyone who wants to download them. There's some really interesting stuff in there. So we live in dangerous times. So vendors are patching their, your computers at home to prevent and shore up vulnerabilities. Patch your computer at your home often to make yourself a little safer. Um, change passwords on critical accounts. We talked about that. Passwords need to be eight characters. We talked about that. Never log into a financial account over a public Wi-Fi. If you're sitting in Starbucks, please don't log into your bank because I am sitting next to you with a little device that over a public Wi-Fi like Starbucks, I can listen in and steal your data. So please don't do that. What you can, well, we're not going to get into VPNs tonight. When entering a username or password on a browser, like logging into your bank, look up at the URL bar and make sure it says HTTPS, S for secure. You want to make sure you're watching for that S. In a lot of browsers, like Firefox and like Google, um, Google it, it'll change the color of your URL bar to green if it's secure. So just, just be on the lookout for that. Um, when email looks fishy, P-H-I-S-H-Y, which is a a term that uh, for, for malicious email. When an email looks fishy, don't click on it because it might have malware. Bad guys are fishing for you to click a link in an email and they make it real enticing and they make it look just like your bank, but you need to be paying attention and don't click on that because that's how your computer gets malware. And how do you know you have malware? Because your computer gets really slow. All laptops, desktops should have security software like McAfee or Symantec or Trend Micro. I'm less concerned about which one it is that you just have something. Don't put anything on social media. You don't want you to follow you the rest of your life. We talked about that. Don't click on pop-up windows telling you your computer is clicked, infected with a virus. 
there's no way they can know that your computer has a virus in a pop-up window. They can't know that. Don't click the link. That's a really common phishing scam, right? And lastly, renew your online bank accounts and credit card quarterly for signs of fraud. Um, a little trick, you know how they have the once a year you can go check your credit report, like freecreditcheck.com or whatever the website is? You can separately do each of the three credit unions. So every three or four months, I can go get one report. And then once a year, you've checked three times throughout the year for your one free check because you get to spread it out over three different credit unions. Does that make sense? So I might do TransUnion this month and I'll wait four months and then I'll check another credit union, wait four months and check another. So I'm checking more frequently throughout the year to see if anybody's opened up an identity in, in my name that I don't know about. The sooner you catch that stuff, the easier it is to clean it up. So um, as I wrap up, I want to just submit to you one last time that everything we've talked about tonight, we talk about social media addiction and the, the, the hold that has on so many families in the church. We talk about the distraction of, um, of games on our phones. We talk about um, how enticing it is to just spend a lot of time buying online. I know people who just love to hang out on Amazon Prime and buy stuff because it'll come quick. In Phoenix, we have an Amazon distribution center like uh, 10 miles away. And so we have Amazon Nap Prime Now, which delivers to your door in four hours. That's crazy. So I have a lot of technology at the house. My wife has to put a hold on me because I can get it like faster than I can go to Best Buy. Uh, they're even using Uber to deliver it. How's that? They are. That's real. So... I want to I remind us back to Matthew 28 because I feel like the church gets so, we in the church get so distracted that we're forgetting the mission. The mission is to go and make disciples. And while we're doing it, we need to be baptizing them and teaching them. And that is our mission. And how can we do that if we have our face in our phones all day, every day? We can't be effective for the Lord if that's our focus. I'm not suggesting technology is bad. I'm suggesting we need to temper it. We need to temper it. So this has been great. I really, again, thank you guys for the opportunity to come spend a little bit of time with you. We, I miss you guys. My wife misses you guys. Uh, my girls do. And uh, we come back a couple times a year. And so you'll see us around occasionally. Uh, I do feel plugged in. I listen to Davin most weeks in the car on the way to work. I, I catch the, the podcast. And so that's a great technology use of technology all the way from Phoenix. I get to stay plugged in here. So uh, that's amazing. So thank you very much for the, uh, the opportunity um, to come speak, spend a little time with you guys.